Thanks for listening to this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We are in a sermon series right now called Signs of the Kingdom, where we're taking a look at the seven miraculous signs that Jesus gave in the book of John. What we're learning is that when Jesus performs a miracle, it's never just a miracle. There's always something deeper for us to learn about who God is and about who we are. After all, that's what signs do. They communicate a message. Our prayer is that this sermon will help you know what God is saying to you today. Feel free to reach out to us by emailing hello at tablechurchdsm.org. Thanks for listening. Now, here's this week's teaching. Happy Easter, Table Church. Our scripture today is from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hands into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Tunnels that it burrows in the Arctic ice. And then it uses its unusually hot head to melt the ice from underneath unsuspecting penguins who will then fall into the grip of their sharp teeth. The article was quickly reprinted and widely distributed by newswires. More mail than they had ever received came pouring into their offices, inquiring about this fascinating new mammal. In fact, they even had zoos that were contacting them, asking how they might be able to help them get a specimen for their collection. The thing that all these people failed to notice was that the article was released on April 1st. And in fact, that um, the name of the Italian scientist Aprile Pazzo is Italian for April Fools. But today, the hot-headed naked ice borer has gone down as one of the greatest hoaxes of all time. Now, maybe you've believed something that you later discovered wasn't true. Maybe you've been led to think something about someone, and it turns out they weren't that way at all. Maybe you were promised something, and they, and they uh, didn't come through on their end of the bargain. Maybe you were led into an embarrassing situation. I can tell you about a time I went camping with a friend when I was young. And uh, his dad and his uncle decided to take me snipe hunting. Uh, has anyone ever hunted snipe before? Okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Although there's not very many of us, so I don't know what that says about this guy. <laughs> I was told that a snipe is a small bird with red eyes that lives in the forest. And it comes out at night, and it runs along the ground. And if you get a bag, and you hold it on the ground, and you make a noise, it'll run into your bag. And then you can snatch it up, and you've caught a snipe. And so there I was in the middle of the forest at night, hunting snipe. And I'm sure they all had a pretty good laugh at my expense. There's no snipe. They don't run into your bag. It's just a hoax designed to make people look silly. 
Listen, our faith hinges upon the assertion that a man came back from the dead. This is a non-negotiable part of what it means to be a Christian. Paul even says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. The resurrection is what gives meaning to our faith. Today's the day we celebrate the resurrection. The resurrection means that sin and death have ultimately been defeated, that the way of Jesus has been shown to be the truth. But as we celebrate today, I also want to speak to those of us here who maybe aren't quite ready to celebrate. I want to speak to people here who might be wondering, could it all just be a giant hoax? Are we all here just hunting snipe? Could this just be a hoax that is so huge that it would make the hot-headed naked ice borer look like a mere footnote? The disciple Thomas is famous for his doubts. He's often called Doubting Thomas. And it comes from the passage that Cheryl just read for us. The resurrected Jesus appears to the disciples, but unfortunately, I don't know where Thomas was. He was out to lunch or something. It says, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas's legacy is being a doubter. But you know, there's a whole lot more to Thomas than that. And so we're finishing our series today called Signs of the Kingdom. We've been looking at the seven signs that John records in his, in his gospel, and it kind of culminates in the crucifixion and resurrection. And so we're going to start a new series next week on spiritual disciplines. I hope you'll join us. Uh, but today we finish up this series, Signs of the Kingdom. And what we're finding is that every time Jesus does a miracle in the book of John, it's not just about the miracle. There's always a, a, under, a message underneath. And I mean, what more so than with the resurrection, of course. There's more happening than just simply the fact that a man came back from the dead. It's everything we've talked about so far today. It's that sin and death have been overthrown and that now we have a hope for the future. But Thomas's legacy might be uh, as a doubter, but as I said, there's much more to Thomas. And so we're going to look back backwards. We're kind of towards the end of John's gospel, we're going to look backwards at some of the other moments that, that Thomas pops up and see what we can learn about his faith journey because I think it's actually pretty relatable. And so, like I said, I want to talk specifically to anyone here today who finds themselves doubting their faith. And I hope this will encourage you. And I want you to know I know how you feel. And I want you to know that I want to be a church where you can bring those questions. We first meet Thomas in chapter 11 of the book of John. Jesus has just told his disciples he wants to go to Judea. Now, what you need to know is that they had just been in Judea. And while they were in Judea, they tried to stone Jesus to death. And so the disciples are naturally a little concerned that Jesus suddenly wants to go back to Judea. I mean, come on, Jesus, don't you think we should at least let things cool off a bit before we go back there? But it's Thomas who speaks up first. He says in verse 16, Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. Like Thomas is charged up. He's ready to die for Jesus. The Thomas that we first meet in John is not a doubter. Quite the opposite. I think he's rather zealous. He's sold out for Jesus that he's willing to follow him to his death. And so this is the first stage, we might say, of Thomas's faith journey the zealot, we could call him. A zealot is someone who is uncompromising in their ideals. They have overwhelming passion for the thing that they believe in. When someone first becomes a Christian, sometimes they have this, this zealous kind of faith, like their eyes have been opened, everything is new and fresh and full of wonder, and, and they're just so excited about, about Jesus. 
You become amazed at the possibilities of knowing God, and we determine that our faith is not going to be average. We're zealous for our faith. I once met a young man. He was in his 20s, and he told me that when he goes home at night after work, he doesn't go out with his friends. He doesn't watch TV. He spends two hours in prayer in his apartment before he goes to bed. This man was zealous. I don't know how true that was or how long it lasted, but he was zealous for his faith. But unfortunately, as many of us here know, youthful zeal does not always last. And it seems it didn't last for Thomas either. The next time we find Thomas is three chapters later in chapter 14, and he seems a lot less certain than he did before. In fact, he seems a little bit confused. Jesus is saying this, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I often wonder if the reason why Thomas wasn't so zealous anymore is he's just like getting worn down with all of Jesus' enigmatic and strange replies to his questions. Like, I am the way. What does that mean exactly, Jesus? I mean, Thomas is thinking when Jesus says, you know the place, the way to the place where I'm going, naturally, oh, you're talking about like directions. Like you're going to a physical place and we know how to get there. Well, no, we don't. And Jesus says, well, I am the way. Well, what does that mean, Jesus? Jesus is talking here, and Thomas is thinking here. And so what we're finding out is sometimes the truth isn't obvious. Jesus' meaning in these statements, that's a little enigmatic, isn't it? I mean, at least when you're thinking in the way that Thomas is thinking. What does it mean exactly that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? And so we see the second stage, we might call it, of Thomas's faith journey. And I call this the questioner. Oh, no, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How would we know? Where are you going? This is the questioner. Once the zealot starts to realize that matters maybe aren't quite as black and white as they first thought they were, that can give rise to questions. In my own life, that started when I was in high school, and I would devour books like ones by C.S. Lewis or William Lane Craig or Lee Strobel, and I was kind of... Reading them, they promised to put an end to my nagging questions. One of the most damaging things I think that we can do as a church or as parents is to shut down this stage of a person's spiritual journey. When someone moves from being a zealot to asking questions, to being the questioner, it's kind of a vulnerable place sometimes. The worldview maybe just took a bit of a hit and they may need someone to catch them. And so listen, when your kids, parents, when your kids start asking questions about the faith, don't panic. That could be a good thing. It means that they're owning their faith, that they're making it theirs. And ultimately, that has to happen. But unfortunately, we often use like doctrinal statements and stuff, or maybe just platitudes or glib little religious statements in order to shut down questions all too often. And that's a misuse of theology. Theology always starts at this place of wonder. This place of awe before the infinite. And, and this idea that, you know, we know God insofar as God has revealed himself to us. Not as rigid lines of demarcation to figure out who's in and who's out. Honestly, the questioning stage, in a way, never really should end. I mean, at what point does anyone really completely understand God? Like, if you figured it all out, I would like to know. I even think that when we're like in glory, we'll continue to learn about God. Because how can, how can anybody ever fully comprehend the infinite, right? I'm kind of a question asker by nature. 
I'm an ordained pastor. I've got two seminary degrees in theology and Bible. But you can ask my family. I'm constantly digging into a new philosophy book. I even just bought a new one on Aristotle yesterday. I, I'm just a question asking, asker by nature. I've always kind of been plagued by this, uh, asking big questions. Some people seem to be able to bracket them out and kind of cordon them off to the side and go about their lives never really wondering. I can't relate. I don't know how that is. I, I always am asking these questions about ultimate truth and meaning in these things. And this lifetime of asking questions for me is ultimately what led me to where I'm at now. But look, if I had a church that tried to forbid this, that didn't patiently think and reflect and help me do those things, I'm not sure if, I, I, I probably would have gone a different direction. Listen, questions are what help us make our faith our own, not someone else's faith. The next time we see Thomas in our passage today, it brings up the third stage of Thomas's faith journey. It's the one we know him best for. Stage three is the doubter. When the other disciples tell Thomas that Jesus is alive, he refuses to accept their word. I'll read it again. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. So he's not asking questions anymore. Did you notice? He's making a statement. He's doubting. He says, look, that's nice for you guys. I'm glad that you had that experience with Jesus. I need something concrete before I'm going to swallow that. And that's where a lot of people are. Now, I think this passage reveals two important questions that I would humbly suggest anyone who's doubting their faith should ask themselves these two questions. Number one, who do I doubt with? Number two, what am I looking for? What exactly am I looking for? Let's start with the first question. Who do I doubt with? Check out the next verse. It says, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Thomas was with them. Thomas didn't go, you know what? Jesus didn't show up to me. I'm out. He stayed with them. I've seen this happen in ministry more than I care to admit. One of the first signs that someone is doubting is that I don't see them very much anymore. One of the first signs that perhaps their, their faith is crumbling is that I just, I see them less than I used to. They don't come to worship. They start to isolate themselves from the community. But it's striking to me that for this week, Thomas, he sticks with his community. Why? Well, probably because they're his family. These are his people. And when you're going through a hard time, who else are you going to be with, Right? And it's in the midst of that community that the living Christ finally appears. And so there's two ways to doubt, alone or in community. And Thomas chose to stay in community despite his doubts. And it was there that he met the risen Jesus. Look, I've seen how God shows up when a group of people are passionately pursuing him. There's just something about that that I don't think I can deny. When it comes to your faith, don't buy into the myth of the rugged loner. We Americans are so influenced by Western movies that exalt the lonely hero. That's not how faith works. Faith is not something you go off by yourself to find. It's a gift that's spurred on by the community revealed to us by God. Walking through a faith crisis alone is not how it's supposed to be. Because listen, people rarely leave the faith for intellectual reasons. It's almost always because they feel hurt or isolated or alone. And yet, our first instinct is often to isolate ourselves, and I assume it's because we're afraid of what people will say 
or what the community, how the community will react if we were honest about how we were feeling. And that's not okay either. And so as Christians, we got to do better about this. We got to be a place where people seeking God can do just that. Seek God. Be a place where you can belong before you believe. Because if the church is in that place where people can be honest, then what place is there? Thomas stuck through his doubts surrounded by his friends that he had walked the same road with for three years, and that's where I want to be too if I'm in a dark place. The second question we should ask ourselves, I think, if we're doubting is, what am I looking for? I think that when we doubt, we're usually looking for one of two things. We're either looking for certainty or we're looking for truth. And you might say, what's the difference? I think there's a big difference between looking for certainty and looking for truth. You see, certainty is a feeling. Certainty can be attained even if what you believe is a delusion. There's a lot of people who are certain that the earth is flat. That doesn't make it true. And I worry that many times Christians, when we're trying to prove our faith, are actually looking more for certainty than we are for truth. And that might be why we often don't handle it so well when somebody is doubting their faith. Because it, it's an attack upon our certainty, our comfort, our feelings. Truth is entirely different. When it's the truth we want, we're willing to humbly seek. When it's the truth we want, we're willing to ask difficult questions. When we want the truth, we aren't just looking for comfort. We're trying to align ourselves with what in fact is the case, with what is ultimately real, even if it means something that makes us uncomfortable. Here's my point here. If you're seeking or doubting this Easter, ask yourself, who am I doubting with? What am I looking for? If you're in a community and you're and you're genuinely seeking the truth. And honestly, as a pastor, I'm not that worried. Because the Bible even says, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I believe that Jesus is the truth that our hearts yearn for. I believe that St. Augustine was right when he said, you have made us for yourself and restless is our heart until it comes to rest in you. Thomas doubted, but he doubted in community. I also believe that as he doubted, he wasn't looking for certainty, that he was looking for truth. And I'll tell you why I think that. Because look what happens next. Jesus appears and he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. This is important. This is how you know somebody is seeking the truth. Because when they encounter it, their response is not to say, cool, I got more ammo for the next debate. Cool, I feel so much better about myself. Their response is to worship the truth that just encountered them. So that's stage four of Thomas's faith journey. It's the worshiper. When someone only wants certainty, usually all they want is to win an argument, to look smart, to feel better. But I think Thomas was after the truth because when he has the truth in the form of the resurrected Jesus, his response is to bow his knee. By the way, that phrase that Thomas says there, my Lord and my God, this is the same phrase that the emperor Domitian required his subjects to use of him, the emperor of Rome at the time that John was written. He would require them to say, our Lord and our God. That's how you were to refer to the emperor at that time. And so Thomas here is not only worshiping Jesus, he's performing an act of rebellion. He is declaring that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. He is not only worshiping Jesus, he is putting his life at stake for Jesus. Why would he do that? Because he's encountered the truth. We don't hear about Thomas again in the rest of the Bible. But 
we do hear about him again in the historical record. And we can be confident that something big changed for Thomas. Something in his heart flipped. Because the tradition tells us that Thomas would eventually travel east and plant a church in what we now know as India. And that church still exists today. I have a couple pictures of the St. Thomas Christians, also known as the Syrian Christians of India. They trace their history back to this apostle who left everything he knew to travel to a foreign and distant land in order to share the gospel and make disciples. 2,000 years of a disciple-making legacy, not bad for a doubter, is it? The resurrection gives us something better than certainty. It gives us truth. The resurrection doesn't just satisfy our intellectual pursuits. It satisfies our hearts. It shows us that evil in this world will end, that death has been overthrown. It shows us that pain will cease, and it shows us that good triumphs over evil. So if you're a doubter or a questioner today, first of all, I have a real soft spot in my heart for you. I'm glad you're here. I also want you to know that there's so much hope for you. Look what God did with Thomas. There's so much hope for you. If you're serious about pursuing truth in a community, we want to offer that to you. In fact, uh, we're going to start something here coming up May 15th. It's called Alpha, and it's a course that, we can, that, that you journey through with other people. This is for people who are seeking, who are doubting, people who are, you know, you've been a Christian for a long time and you just want to understand your faith better. Alpha is for everybody, and I want to invite you to join us. Uh, and just to help you kind of get an idea of what Alpha is all about, go ahead and take a look at this video. Join our Alpha, just write a big fat Alpha on your connection card and we'll be in touch with you. If you're watching online, you can email us at hello at tablechurchdsm.org to sign up. We'd love to have you. Listen, we talked about four stages today, the zealot, the questioner, the doubter, and the worshiper. Which one are you? Because if you're one of those who are maybe in the middle right now, the two or the three, um, perhaps you're actually, maybe you want to go to four today. Maybe you want to become a worshiper today. Maybe you want to bow your knee to Jesus. And if that's where you're at, then I want to give you that opportunity. Would you all pray with me? If right now you want to make a commitment to Christ and you want to follow him with your life, would you simply repeat, repeat this in your heart? Say, Jesus, I believe that you are Lord. I believe that you are God. And I want my life to follow you in every way it possibly can. Jesus, I repent of the ways I've gone wrong. And I ask for you to please heal my heart and my soul. Make me yours. I pray all of these things in your name, the name above every other name, the name by which we are saved. Amen.